and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Johnson, or Steph, as I'll refer to in this conversation. I did ask her what she likes to go by, and she said, Steph, she's an author, a professor, a keynote speaker, and she studies the intersection of leadership and diversity. And you're going to hear intersections, polarities in today's conversation. And I think what is really fascinating about Steph is that in a world where we talk about things in leadership and things in diversity as sound bites, and we try to put them into labels and think in very black and white ways, Steph and her research and her findings and her theories really does speak in nuance. She focuses on how unconscious bias affects the evaluation of leaders, and she's going to talk about that in very tangible ways in today's conversation, and strategies that leaders can use to mitigate bias. 
And also she's going to talk about that in today's conversation. She has a great book called Inclusify, which is all about harnessing the power of uniqueness and belonging to build innovative teams, where in that book, she shares the surprising ways that leaders undermine inclusion and provides actionable ways that leaders can pivot to build more inclusive teams. And once again, you're going to hear this polarity. She thinks that Inclusify, this idea of inclusion, is really about both uniqueness and belonging. So how do you let people have the autonomy to express themselves while also understanding that they're part of something bigger than themselves? Um, She is a well-established researcher and scholar. She works with some of the best companies in the world to help them create more inclusive leaders. We'll talk about her work with NASA and the NFL, and she brings brings up her also tremendous work in healthcare. She's extensive consulting experience and she's created and delivered leadership development trainings with an emphasis on evidence-based practices. She's a fellow in the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychologists and the American Psychological Society. She's also passionate about disseminating her work more broadly and has taught two LinkedIn learning courses on how to increase diversity and inclusion in corporations. She's written for the Harvard Business Review and she's an in-demand keynote speaker. She's presented her work at over 170 meetings around the world, including at the White House for a 2016 Summit on Diversity in Corporate America on National Equal Pay Day. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, Washington Post, I could go on and on, CNN, ABC, NBC, uh, etc. And at her core, I think you're going to find her to be extremely approachable, extremely curious, and someone who's not necessarily judgmental and open to finding ways to collaborate with others to make our world a little bit better. So here is Dr. Stephanie or Steph Johnson. Steph, thank you for coming on the podcast. Where I thought we'd start is there's something in your bio that that stood out to like 12-year-old Brian, or I even think of my kids who are six and seven years old. And the fact that we found each other because of your work through the NFL. And I also know that you've done some work with NASA. And I think about the young boy in me as a kid and I loved astronauts and eating like, <laughs> eating like astronaut ice cream in elementary school. And then I grew up a big NFL fan uh, and, and going to games. And so I'd love for you to give us like a behind the curtain look at those organizations, if you want to call them organizations, uh, and maybe how they're similar and how they're different. Yeah, I love that question. I hadn't thought about it. And, you know, NASA and the NFL, maybe it's... Um, for me as a college professor, I always feel like, you know, what we're what we're doing is so important, but you know, we're not putting a person on the moon. Um, we're not like huge fan base. I always say like we're not curing cancer. And I work with MD Anderson Cancer Center. So maybe some of that is like my same little kid self wanting to work with these like super outstanding organizations. But it's just funny uh to hear that I'm not the only person who feels that way. NASA and the NFL. Um, You know, it's interesting. So when I worked with NASA a few years ago, helping them um, remove gender bias from their application process, specifically, it was for the Hubble Space Telescope's time allocation committee. And we were really successful, so much so that NASA has used this process directorate wide. And so it's really great. 
But my big feeling working with astrophysicists and astronomers is like, wow, these are really smart people. Like I have lots of letters after my name, you know, all the letters. And I was really blown away by just the intellect and how quick people are and strategic. And the, I guess maybe the ironic thing is I feel exactly the same at the NFL. And I don't know why that's ironic, but I guess you would think like the PhDs in astrophysics, of course, they're going to be super geniuses, but man, there's some really smart folks at the NFL too. So that's, so I, st I still feel equally intimidated. Like, oh my gosh, these people are so brilliant. Culturally, you know, maybe they look a little different and you've worked in um, lots of different sports industry so you know the style and people are a little more i don't know maybe a little more cool i guess <laughs> um so that's different but you know what i'm working uh, with most organizations i work with it's really around diversity equity and inclusion um and trying to maximize performance by ensuring that you have an inclusive workplace and you know similarly both of the those organizations they have really great cultures and people are really focused on wanting, they really want to create an equitable and inclusive work environment. I don't know that there's organizations that don't want that, right? Sometimes it's just the mechanics of how you get there. As you're talking, I'm thinking about stereotypes. And as you're describing the astrophysicists and you're saying they're actually like pretty similar to maybe some of the front office people that you're interacting with on NFL teams. And there was just a Netflix special on quarterbacks in the NFL. And they followed, I think four of them, three of them. And I'm watching them. I'm like, these guys are nerds. Uh, like, <laughs> these guys are talking about studying and like doing like really nerdy stuff. And there's almost this myth of like the quarterback jock from high school. Who's like the cool guy. Um, and if you study quarterbacks, a lot of them are not that a lot of them love to read and love to get into the playbook and study and, and research. I want to double click on that a little more and just talk about stereotypes and we can maybe move beyond the NFL and NASA, or we can use that as an example. How do stereotypes help us? And, and when do they hurt us and hinder us as we're thinking about used hiring as an example, but running an organization or hiring, what do you see when stereotypes might help us and when they might also create blind spots and hinder us as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we use stereotypes as, you know, quick methods of making sense of the world. You've probably heard these statistics that, you know, we're taking in millions of pieces of information all the time. And so we can't really function in the world without our stereotypes or heuristics or whatever you want to call them, biases. Um, to keep us safe, to help us make decisions quickly. If you see, you know, I, I live in Colorado, so I see an animal that looks like a bear. This is really good heuristic. Or just the other day, I was out hiking with a friend and uh, we came across a snake. And there's like a really quick uh, mental response that humans have to snakes, right? You're like, everyone notices them and you have this like immediate fear response, even though I like snakes perfectly, it's not anti-snake, but there is this kind of automatic response. And those are, those are really useful things, the way we have stereotypes. I think a lot more than using the word stereotype, because it always sounds 
negative. It's like the prototype. So you were using, you know, prototypical quarterback. You think of the jock and those are paired associations that you have in your mind. You've seen a lot of people who may come across a certain way. And so you connect those two things. You start to make inferences and same thing with our astrophysicists or a car salesman or a nurse or a doctor or surgeon. Like we have these really quick reactions in our mind. And that is useful because you know who to turn to when you might need help. Super destructive on the other hand, when we use the stereotypes to make inferences about people when it comes to things like hiring, their interest in excelling or becoming a leader in the organization. Um, since I'm a, a business professor, you know, I really think of these things in terms of um, business success and career success. And that's where those prototypes that are super useful start to become hindrances for, for teams and individuals' effectiveness. It's interesting. We had on the podcast a gentleman by the name of Scott O'Neill. And Scott at the time was the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. And I asked Scott, what do you, how do you know someone fits the culture here? And he looked at me and he said, we don't look for people who fit our culture. What we look for is alignment of values. And he said, when I look for fit, I'm looking for people that look like me, sound like me, talk like me. And I don't want that. I want to have people that don't look like me or talk like me or, or sound like me. But I do want people that align from a values standpoint. I'm curious to get your perspective on that and how you think about that when an organization is looking for someone that either fits or aligns or whatever the distinction is that perhaps we should be using to ensure that we don't um, have bias against certain people while still embracing our culture and, and trying to find people that will add value to our organization. Yeah. I mean, that I use that exact quote, like that's the same kind of view and advice. So maybe you should introduce us because I feel like totally aligned with that statement that having someone, a culture fit, you know, this is very popular. You hear it a lot in tech companies. We hear it, you know, in universities, we want someone who's going to fit our culture. And I like to maybe take a spin on that and say, who's going to add to our culture yet. You really do need to align on values. Like, why are we here? What's our purpose? Those kinds of things. You know, it's extremely important to have people who are, who share your mission, but when it comes to fit, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Who fits is the people who look just like all the other people there. Um, you know, you dress the same, you talk the same. And what we see, at least in corporate America, is having people like we all are the same means that we're probably missing out on a huge um, percentage of our customer base because we're only going to appeal to a certain type of customer. We're not going to know how to reach out to different types of customers. And then even in conversation, when everyone sees things the same way, you make much less innovative, creative, and even accurate decisions. You're way better off having people who are really different from each other, even if they know less than having a, a really similar group of experts. Because since you all think the same, you're likely to make the same mistakes and you're likely to miss opportunities that someone who was different could have seen. I think about the military and I think about the people that I've interacted with the military and particularly, let's just use Navy SEALs. We've had a lot of Navy SEALs on this podcast and 
when I talk to them, they talk to me about, yeah, the process that we go through, through buds and training. And they basically try to, in some ways, strip us down and see who is the strongest. And what's interesting is when I've been around them and I've been able to be around like four at a time, they're actually quite different. Uh, and yet we have this image of what they look like because they all are shredded and and ripped and in great, <laughs> shit, great shape. But the ones that I've interacted with intellectually or from a value standpoint, uh, I find to be quite diverse. As you think about our military, um, what's your perspective on how we think about building those teams and building uh, those people as they get ready to go to war? Great, great question. And I bet people envy you hanging out with Navy SEALs. That's another like childhood dream. People want to grow up and be a Navy SEAL. Um, also, you know, in the last few years, I've had a lot of opportunity to interact with different uh, branches of the military around this, my work on inclusion and inclusify, because I believe they're starting to realize that in order to maintain a robust and active military, they're going to need to make some changes, you know, putting people first is kind of the um, new mantra, look, there's still, I'll say two really opposing statements. So on the one hand, you're right, all this idea that everyone's the same, it's never true. It's more, it's usually in a high culture fit organizations, like any military branch, you know, you're all dressed the same, right? You follow the same orders, you same haircut. When you try to make people the same, the reality is people are just hiding their difference. It's not as if they're really not different. How could you even find four people who are totally the same? So. They're just not letting that difference out, which is pretty exhausting, to be honest. And in, if you think of um, creative and innovative organizations, you're actually really detracting from that individual's ability to contribute because they're thinking about like, how can I fit in? On the other hand, here's the extreme opposite. You can understand why the military needs people to fall in line because it's not about like, you know, we need to make a decision quickly. Let's hear all the perspectives. It's like, no, you actually just need to listen to the decision maker in this case. So I feel like it's a both and you need to train people. It's really important to train people to be able to follow orders unless there's a you know really big reason someone needs to speak up. And for the military to continue to attract and retain top talent, they're going to need to allow for more difference. And I, I think that's what they're working toward in a lot of the military branches, maybe, you know, the more elite, you know, smaller units, maybe they can maintain the old guard, but overall to get millennials and Gen Zers in the military, I think some things are going to have to flex. All right. It, it's really interesting. The thing that the things that are popping into my head as you're talking, I'm going to examples in my life that yeah. are very vivid and the one that came in as we were talking is I worked with a high school basketball team for a number of years and they had a big game playing against a team that uh, had beat them in the past. And the coach wanted the players to wear the same shoes the entire season. Like we have shoes that we're going to wear and their star player showed up to that game ready to wear these flashy shoes that were going to make him stick out from the group. And we're standing in the locker room getting ready for like their biggest game of the season. And the coach is telling that player that he can't wear those shoes. And the 
kid is not having it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's like, I want to wear these shoes. I want to express myself. I want yada, yada, yada. The coach is like, you're just not going to play them. And they literally go at it over a pair of shoes. Wow. And once again, I like that you brought polarity into this because I think if you think of these things as black and white, perhaps you miss the stories that have happened up until that point and what led to this sort of confrontation and, yeah. and why this actually matters to coach and why this actually matters to the player. And I think in our society today, in my opinion, we are moving into a more inclusive environment. We are more, I think, generally speaking, I guess this could be up for debate, but more accepting of different people. And we are progressing in, in that vein. Like DEI wasn't necessarily a thing 40 years ago. Not to say that we don't still have issues. We do. But I, one of my concerns is that as we go away from church, as we go away from, you know, maybe aligning with our communities, as we go away from maybe, um, I don't want to say labels, but like some of my favorite moments are going to a football stadium and knowing like we're all in this together, no matter what yeah. we look like, no matter what we sound like, no matter where you're from, I'm high-fiving you because you're on my team. America, like if you're American, I have something in common with you. Uh, if you go to a church, like, you know, you're at church and you're all there together. There is a belonging that exists in these sort of institutions that I I worry about as we work from home and as we, um, you know, maybe don't get our groceries in the grocery store and we have them delivered of this like individualistic <laughs> element that maybe we're missing the sense of we of a uniform of like, yeah, we're all in this together. I, I worry about that as we continue to progress as a society. I want to stop there and get yeah. your perspective as we went from a high school basketball team to a church. Uh, we but through, yeah, we flew through church and the grocery store. We did everything. You know, I, you're, what you're saying is correct. You know, there's data to show that people are less involved in their communities and churches. I think that's uncorrelated with the inclusion that organizations are taking on. Um, and, you know, I wish people were still in their churches and had their communities. I don't know if there's any reason that should stop. People get a lot of strength and belonging from churches and other community organizations. I think we need more of that. But there are huge changes, I think, with the remote work that seem just dead center on this aspect of feeling inclusion at work. Before the pandemic, when I was doing research for Inclusify, the I would say most the biggest concern. So the way I describe inclusion, and we're gonna, and we're going to talk about this later, but it's this idea that you can be your unique self, and at the same time you can belong. This is based on uh, you know well documented theory. We need both of these things. It's really important. And before the pandemic, I felt like a lot of the challenges that I heard when I did interviews and surveys were around I can't be my unique self. And now with, when people are working from home, you and I are both sitting in our homes, I'm guessing, I feel like I can be all myself. Like if you can make it, if we can make it through this podcast with you not saying a cat or a child, like that is a shock, okay? Cause you're at the, you're in my house. This is what, this is what happens. I feel like me, I'm, I'm wearing pajama pants. Like that's the reality. People just, they're not putting on the uniform and going and, um, being someone who they're not to the same extent. On the other hand, 
the belonging is such a huge challenge when you're when you don't have people coming together face to face, you know, in person, having the ability to connect on a human level, even if we're much better at doing the zoom and the teams, gotten used to it, it's still there's something a little bit sterile about it, right? You don't feel as connected. So I think that's a big challenge. I have lots of thoughts on it, what organizations can do. But I feel like we don't have that entirely worked out yet. And I don't know what the future is going to look like when it comes to people working, you know, in person, remote, hybrid, et cetera. What are some of those thoughts on how you bring and and Steph has a great two by two. We talked about this when we had our pre-call uh, <laughs> that every book seems to have a two by two. And Steph was like, my book has a two by two. Yes. And, and here it is, right? The unique and the belonging. How do we get high on both of those rather than being high on one and low on another? Like, what are some thoughts that you have for people that are listening to this that are in leadership positions on how we can create both of those? Yeah, I would say for the remote work aspect, you know, a lot of organizations are saying you have to be in the office X amount of time. And I think that's, you know, we're good at that, like passing a rule. Um, but I think there's a big missed opportunity there to actually structure some of that time if you want to provide opportunities for people to come in the office where they can really benefit. It might be, you know, collaborative time, innovative time, social time, like build things out so it's not just the feeling that I'm coming to work because coming to the office, I'm still working, right? And most of the data show people are more effective and efficient when they're remote. So if I'm going in, like pro provide opportunities to really benefit from that. And I hear this mostly from uh, millennials and Gen Zers who are like, I go, I went to the office, I was the only person there. And I said, I just drove an hour, paid the toll road, paid for parking, to sit in the office by myself. That doesn't, like why? So I can check a box. So it's it's not like a, you have to do this organizations, but I think it's just a missed opportunity. If you have people there plan the work time, the brainstorming, the innovation session. And if you don't have one of those that you need that day, provide the opportunity for shared lunch break or happy hour or coffee hour or something. So people can get the, that, human connection. So they're not there by themselves. And when you're remote, I have the suggestion that when some people are remote, like so when you're hybrid, some people are remote, some people are in the office and you're in a meeting, I have every person in that meeting open their laptop. And so that the people who are remote can see everyone in the exact same size and shape as they're being seen. So usually the norm is there's one camera in a room and the remote people are up on the screen. So you have these huge faces, the remote people, and the remote people can only see the tops of your heads or whatever it might be, but make it more balanced. And then you'll get greater engagement from the people who are remote. I think that can be, you know, kind of a useful trick or tool um, to, and it's more inclusive, right? Just because everyone kind of feels the same. The only challenge is working out the audio because you don't want like echo through the room for <laughs> that for one's a time. that one's a big one though because i do talks with companies and sometimes they'll say hey like we're gonna have a couple people that are working from home and then we're gonna be in a conference room with eight of our people and i as a presenter if i'm in the room with them and i'm presenting to those eight people in the room then the people on the screen get left out yeah. um and then i find the opposite can be 
true as well. It's like if they're all in the room looking up at a TV, but everyone else, but I'm on screen, it's, it's awkward. And I think the best neutralizer to that is for everyone to be on the screen. And if, you know, if one person's on the screen, let's all be on the screen and then you have equal real estate and you're playing in the same box. That's right. And you can use the little hand functions, put stuff in the chat. I mean, there's so many interesting things that I've gotten out of this, the screen since we've gone this way um, that are also good tools to create equality or equity because some people just are louder and more confident and more likely to speak up. They're maybe extroverts, maybe they have more organizational tenure, but they get more airtime in meetings. And when you're in a, you know, alternative meeting room, like a Zoom or a WebEx or whatever it might be, anyone can type notes in and be heard. Or if you put your hand up, you know, someone can say, oh, you want to say something. Whereas face-to-face, even though I do, I do this, so people who work with me would probably call me out. Sometimes I'll just raise my hand because I don't feel like trying to talk over people. So I'm a lifelong student. I can just <laughs> raise my hand whenever I want. And you could do that in Zoom. And it's like, it's just become natural. That leads to a, a theme that you talk about in the book, which is meritocracy. And uh, Ray Dalio wrote a book where he talked about principles, but one of the big things he talked about at his company is we're a meritocracy. And it sounds great. And ideally, that's how it works. Um, but you use, I think, a, a company as an example in GitHub, which really embraced this concept of a meritocracy and had some challenges that existed with that. So maybe this is a good way for us to transition to talk about how maybe inclusifier being an inclusifier and a culture that embraces that and the benefits of that compared to the concept of a meritocracy. So let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I love meritocracy. If only we had them, right? That would be amazing. But there, it's just never true. You know, I'm a in, I work in a university, university admissions should be meritocratic, right? But we know they're not. Like if you can pay $1,000 to take a SAT prep course and it raises your score 100 points guaranteed, how can we pretend that this SAT scores or any scores are a meritocracy? You just can't. And if you look at the wealth of students in top universities it's astonishing just you know pick any elite private school and the percentage of students who come from the top 10 percent or the top one percent of earners in america it's like it's really really disheartening if you want to believe that anyone can get ahead or anyone can be successful it's like yes if you can pay this huge amount of money so it's that's not meritocratic. And then if you start to follow that out right now, where you go to school has a huge impact on where you're able to interview because companies recruit from specific schools. And then even within companies, like I work with a lot of sales teams and they're like, we're the ultimate meritocracy sales, right? Pharmaceutical sales or insurance sales. It doesn't matter. We, you know, eat what we kill, right? That's like their mantra. But I'm like, who gave you the clients? to go call on. Did you just pick them out of the phone book? And like, no, well, someone offered me, why don't you try to get this client? Or why don't you take over this client? And those little decisions about who gets which opportunity are 
likely to be influenced by those stereotypes and things that we talked about before, who's most likely to connect with the client? You know, who's going to have a good rapport with them? So you choose someone who might be more similar to the client because you want to be successful. And then you start to see disparities, whether it's gender or race, age, you know, there's a lot of evidence that people who are older get discriminated against in organizations. So it's never really going to be a meritocracy, but I think when you hold that, like we, this is what we really believe, you're you're making yourself blind or unaware of the instances where it's not fair. And so I like to focus on like, how can we create processes to really make it fair? So that was the the NASA example. We remove names from applications and then it removed bias showing that one there was bias and two you could actually do something about it when i think of meritocracy i go back to sports because people say oh sports is the ultimate meritocracy we play the best players and that's how it works and you look at like the best sports organizations like i remember the san francisco giants had a uh, manager named Bruce Bochy. And they won, I think, three World Series over eight years, let's call it. People check me on that. It's probably not accurate, <laughs> but but they they were very successful. And I remember he would play the best players and he didn't care who was making more money or less money. He said, hey, we're going to put the people out that we think are going to help us win a game. And he may not have used the word meritocracy, but he probably would say it's based on merit. It's based on have you earned it? And as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, though, it depends on where an organization is in their building, because that might have worked for them as they were contending and and they could move people around and that's what they're trying to do. But all the time in sports, they draft people based on potential. We hear this word yeah. potential all the time. And that person didn't have the best statistics in college. Uh, they didn't have the merit to go number one or number two or number three, but they saw something in them that they were excited about. And that's why they took them and they felt like we could develop them and we could help them improve and help them yeah. get better. And it's interesting. We see that in sports, but we don't necessarily think of that in business, right? Like, oh, this person has a lot of potential. What would it look like if we actually gave them more space to speak up in a meeting? Or what would it look like for us to give them an opportunity to be part of this team? Or what would it look like for us to invest in a coach for them or whatever it might be? And so I'm thinking about those elements because on one hand, Bruce Bochy, I respect the hell out of because he wasn't playing politics in those instances. And he was just saying, we're going to play the best players and we have a job to do to win a championship. But on the flip side, there are these other cultures that say, no, we're building something and this is going to take time and we need to invest and develop our people. And, and they may not be the person that you think we should take based on what their past experience has been. Yeah, that's a huge challenge. And even in, you know, in sports, the potential idea is huge. Do you have an agent who's talking you up and getting you in the media? So everyone thinks you're the, like, I, I always read those lists of the people to watch I'm like how did they get on like some of the people I'm like how did that person get on the list like they they were pulling some strings someone was looking out for this person and that happens all the time and it I think it's the same in business there's connections is someone willing to vouch for you and say your name when you're not in the room you know we're looking for someone for this opportunity it's called sponsorship you know who we should consider this person like and having someone powerful vouch for you it's the ultimate 
lack of meritocracy, right? Because who do they vouch for? Someone who reminds them of themselves, someone who is similar to them, getting mentoring. Like I know, I just how many times in everyone's life can you think of where you're like, well, this person was really important. They're the first person who said, if you do, you should do a podcast. I'll be your your first guest and I'm a big name. Like those small opportunities have big impacts when you follow them down the road. Stay with the NFL because I think it's something that people will understand. We just had two general managers on the podcast. So maybe they listen yeah. to those conversations and those two general managers are very different. Less need with the LA Rams. Who's been with the Rams for, I think 10 plus years uh, and worked his way up and um, he's got his own story. And then Ryan Poles, who was with the Chicago bears and, and Ryan was really young. I think he was like 36 when he was hired by the bears, African-American guy. Um, and his agent called the bears and said, Hey, you should interview this guy. Yeah. Um, and I think about Mike Tomlin with the Pittsburgh Steelers who famously, they call it the Rooney rule now in yeah. the NFL where African-American guy, young guy blows him away and has been one of the most successful head coaches. Yeah. So what are the processes that you recommend the NFL or any organization takes because the NFL now, I mean, if you have a person of color on your staff and they get hired somewhere, you literally get compensated with draft picks. Um, and it's an interesting place that the NFL is in now where they are rewarding people for hiring uh, diverse candidates um, into leadership positions. And by the way, we should preface this by saying they have a long history of not hiring those people um, in, in the NFL. It's been a challenge that they're admitting, hey, we need to do better. Um, and they're they're trying to do better. So what's your perspective on, is it rewarding through compensation? Is it rewarding like with draft picks, like we see in the NFL? Like what are the um, rewards and are, should there be consequences for not doing it? How do we think about um, creating a more um, diverse leadership workforce? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. The Importantly, the draft pick compensation policy, it's the team that grew and developed this person who gets compensated, not the one who hired them. So you're not getting compensated for hiring people. Um, the Rooney rule, you know, it's you have to interview two um, underrepresented candidates, so a woman and a person of color. Um, and that is has I think it started in the NFL but has become massively popular with corporate America. They call it diverse slates. They don't call it the Rooney rule, um, but it's used, I don't know, all the time for hiring for corporate boards. You know, we're not saying you have to put a woman or a person of color on your board. And I'll talk more about that in a second, but you should at least be interviewing them. Because if you look at corporate boards, they're you know pretty homogenous, and they have they're supposed to be um, fiduciaries to stockholders, so they're supposed to be ensuring that the company uh, is putting the shareholders' value first. And we know that corporate boards make better decisions when they have diversity. So they, I kind of wonder. I mean, maybe they some countries across the globe have actually required companies to have a certain level of diversity on their board because it improves decision making. There's lots of activist investors that have, you know, really pushed for diversity on corporate boards. I, you know, all of that, I think, is really challenging. You could go kind of either way. There's Supreme Court lawsuits around 
uh, affirmative action. So I don't know if requiring quotas is really what we need today. But I would say for sure, if you're only interviewing a small demographic, let's just say it's white men when it comes to corporate boards, which are 31% of the population, if 100% of your interviewees come from that 31% of the population, I can guarantee you, you're never going to have any diversity on that board. It's not possible, right? So I love the idea of diverse slates because that means that you might spot the Mike Tomlin, someone who's like, could really be a game changer for your board or for your company. And so, you know, organizations use it for all sorts of executive search. Some use it throughout the whole organization. Let's have diverse slates and diverse interview panels too, to make sure that people feel like you're getting different perspectives on both sides of the desk. In your book, you have a great subtitle, which was the mistake of man hating. And I will speak for all white men right now that the last few years have been really interesting. Uh, you know, you talk about the Me Too movement in uh, in your book, but, um, you know, I think you wrote the book pre-George Floyd. Uh, you know, the world is, is constantly evolving and constantly changing. And I certainly have had people say, yeah, Brian, we're looking for a female person of color for this role or this job. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting thing to hear. Um, and can you talk about maybe that compared to this idea of man hating and yeah. how do you create allyship and, and what that looks like uh, for women that may be listening to this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think this is a, a huge challenge for organizations and I mean just for me I think it's a personal challenge and maybe lots of people face this but you know in trying to promote diversity and I'm Mexican-American woman so I consider myself like a you know, diverse right uh I think it's easy to give the impression whether it's true or not that your pro-diversity viewpoints are therefore anti-men or anti-non-Hispanic white or something like that, right? And I think the biggest group you, you feels targeted is white men. So we want diversity and that means we don't want white men. In fact, that's not at all true. You need white men to create diversity. We need all the people. And I think it's even more true for inclusion because I you know, host inclusion events, do these inclusion things and majority group members are like, well, I don't think this is for me. I don't want to take up space. It's not about me. But it, in fact, it really is because we need everyone working together, collaborating to how to create an inclusive environment where everyone can be successful. And that means the majority or the minority or people of color or whites or men and women together. And I love that you use the word allyship because I think that's, you know, a great opportunity to bring more white men into the diversity conversation is as allies. But even if they're not allies, it's also about them. Like I I have this story in the book where someone was telling me, it was just like a personal anecdote. They were doing like a reading a book and other people in their office were reading it. And it was like how to date men when you hate men. And that's like <laughs> Well, how do you think the men in the office feel? And I know, and you know, I'll 
there's been many a moment where I'm like, you know, how many times have I had to heard this crap about women, right? Yes. And do I want to therefore do the same thing to others? No, and never. I don't. That's not the goal. It's not about excluding one group to create a more inclusive environment. See how that would never work, right? And I, I hear your experience when people say, oh, we want, we're really looking for a woman because we don't want to have a mantle, like an all-male panel again, right? You'd be great, Brian, but we really, we need a woman. We already have a bunch of men. And I think that sucks. And I have been the person who was told, oh, we just can't hire a woman. Women don't do well here. The students beat up on them. You know, all the women seem to fail out. We don't want to hire another woman and have her fail. And feeling like, well, that's something I don't have any control over is the gender that I am. And I think it's the same for you. You know, you don't have any control over the gender that you are or the the moment or movement that we're experiencing. And it still feels equally cruddy, right? I wonder, like for me, it's it's not a big deal because I have lived a very privileged life in a number of ways. So the word privilege for me is like, it's cake. It's, it's easy. It's not yeah. a big, it's not a big deal. But I would imagine for somebody who did not have the same upbringing that I had with two parents that loved me and loved each other and be in a community that was welcoming and encouraging and to have the SAT tutor that you're mentioning earlier, like uh, it's very easy for me, but someone that may look like me might've had a very different experience. And I think our society right now is struggling with toggling and dealing with that. And certainly we see that in our politics and I think it's, it's, it's challenging and it is nuanced. And yeah. I just had someone on the podcast talk about generations and how you even talked about millennials and Gen Zs. It's like, well, they're diverse and unique and their identities are, are wide ranging. And yet we often go toward the stereotype of yeah. saying that. And certainly there's research that backs up certain things here, certain things there with, with different identities and different pieces of us. Um, but I find when we start there, if we start with a stereotype, it limits our ability to go underneath and really understand um, what that person might might bring to the table. So I think it can be part of the conversation. But when it's the whole conversation, it feels exclusionary. Uh, yeah. At least that's sort of my perspective on it. You just said all the things, like everything you just said. I wish like I could put that in a bottle because... I feel like you capture all the nuance of what makes this really challenging. And it's the whole story. Um, God, there's this great TED talk and um, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to link it in the podcast, but about um, understanding the whole story versus having this stereotype. And, you know, I'll say from like a university perspective, when we look at increasing diversity, among our student body, we look for underrepresentation. And so that means in Colorado, um, you know, I don't know that gender is, I don't know that women are underrepresented in higher ed. So maybe it's underrepresented racial groups, um, but it's not only that, it's also first generation college students in Colorado, rural, so coming from farming communities, um, Pell Grant eligible, so that's, you know, income level, um persons with disabilities veterans like we try to take a very diverse view on 
diversity and underrepresentation so that it's not just like we don't need any more white men at our school like that's not the point of improve that's not going to improve diversity right you're just going to maybe fill those seats with people with very similar life experiences as those who you excluded so if you really want a diverse background you got to think broadly about what that means and then i think the you know this polarization of like oh well, we're we're seeing things very differently we're i'm anti this or pro this or you know i i really think if you have a curious and empathetic perspective and talk to people you'll find that probably their our views are not that different we all want i think we all kind of want the same thing we want a inclusive environment where we can be successful and maybe where everyone can be successful and the millennials and gen z's i'll use them as a great example of how stereotypes you know can go out of whack because if you really look at the data on generational differences, you know, the boomers, the Gen Xers, there is way more differences within generations than there are across generations. So you can't say as, you know, using this as the whole story, oh, you're a millennial, so you, you know, you live with your parents and you have a side hustle and, you know, whatever the stereotypes are for millennials, because you'd be just as likely to get that right about someone who's a boomer, right? It's just, uh, I think it's just a fact of life. And then it's easier to see the characteristics that stand out because of their age. Like when boomers were this age, they acted just probably quite similar to the way millennials act. And they were, they were more liberal than they are today because we all become more conservative as we get older, statistically speaking. So it's, I think it's kind of junk to say that this, these stereotypes about groups, even generations really exist, but then like, I just used it. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I think it goes back to the beginning of the conversation. We are looking for heuristics. They're easy. They're low hanging fruit. And we do have pieces of our identity. Maybe there's like 20 pieces or for you, there's 27. And for someone else, there's 30 five pieces that are really ingrained in their identity. The big key though, is to be intentional with finding out what those things are while also acknowledging our history and how our society is set up and that there are elements that are set up to negatively impact certain groups, whether those are unconscious or conscious or intentional or unintentional. I think like we can take a holistic approach and be human and you know, what you said earlier about like, we're more similar than we are different. It speaks your definition of inclusify, which I'm going to read out loud just to give the listener uh, a reason to go buy your book. I think oh, this thanks. is, is like really key. So Steph's definition is to live and lead in a way that recognizes and celebrates unique and dissenting perspectives while creating a collaborative and open-minded environment where everyone feels they truly belong. And the middle of that, celebrates unique and dissent and, and dissenting perspectives. You in our conversations now, we've been going for about an hour now, and we had about an hour before are unique in your capacity and your ability to do that. And oh, thank you. I'm not sure everybody is, and I'm not sure everybody um, that's really in positions of leadership or working in DEI or human resources celebrates unique and dissenting 
perspectives. And that piece, I'm curious for you, how do you go about doing that? Because I'm sure you get hijacked or you get emotional uh, in certain instances, but to celebrate unique and dissenting perspectives is hard, especially when they don't agree with your values or what you believe in. How do you manage yourself to celebrate unique and dissenting perspectives? Oh, I love that question. And I'm going to pass back the compliment because I think that you do the same thing, in fact. And I think for you, and maybe it's the same for me, it's some of it is just a curiosity to understand, like, if you have a really different view than mine, I want to know why, because I don't believe I'm the only one that knows what's right in the world, right? There wouldn't be different perspectives if one perspective is just like, this is the right, this is the answer then it probably, you know, 99% of people would believe it, but that's not what we see. So I really seek, I think I'm really curious. I seek to understand where people are coming from and how they, like, how did they get there? Maybe that's empathy. Um, I'm super curious about people. You know, I, I did my PhD in psychology. So I'm like, everyone got to where they are based on their life experiences. And so I like to understand that. And then the you know, maybe the real truth. Yeah, I'm curious and wonderful in all the ways, but maybe the real bottom line truth is I know it makes my outcomes better when I have people who have really different views than my own. I worked for a while with uh, this amazing human, Aaron Roof, who was a, um, you know, had a military background and his views on leadership were so different than mine. I'm like, oh, let's be inclusive and shared leadership. And, and he was, you know, had a military background. And so he had more of a traditional hierarchical view of leadership and the programming and opportunities we put together at, this is at the Center for Leadership at University of Colorado were all the better because we had, you know, I couldn't just take it to the extreme of like, we don't need leaders. We all just share the responsibility. You do need leaders. And so our training that we offered and our opportunities for students were better because we had these like very opposing views on the way things should be done. And that's an anecdote. And I know the plural of anecdote isn't data, but there's lots of data that shows this is true, that having different views results in better outcomes. I think the reason why we've enjoyed getting to know each other, at least it sounds like, my number one value that I have is empathetic curiosity. And I like blending values together rather than leaving them singular because the truth is I'm not curious about everything. If I went to NASA, I would not be curious about how they get the engine and how they fire (laughs) it off and how they get that thing in the air. I don't have an engineer mind. I'm not all that interested, but I would want to sit with the astronaut and find out what they're thinking as they walk out, um, you know, to go on this rocket that could blow up and what it's like to be, you know, thousands of miles away and look at our universe. Like those are the things that I'm fascinated by. And so people, which you mentioned, you're curious about are, are really what I end up being curious about. However, there are a lot of people that are not as curious about people. And that's, I think the rub, like, and that's where you brought in the data, like you're trying to bring in, all right, well, that's the anecdotal evidence, but you know, there's also, here's the numbers. And if we can show the the case for this is actually good business, that's also a piece of it. Um, The curiosity piece that I just want to hit on for one second here is something I've become obsessed with. And anyone that's listening to this podcast knows um, like, how do we unlock the curiosity that we have when we're five years old? 
And I know you have two kids. Like you spend time with five-year-olds and they are curious. And then we become 35 and 45 and 55. And our curiosity gets chiseled away as we become an expert at something. And then we're expected to give information rather than continue to explore like a five-year-old. And so I've been on this journey to try to explore like, why is that A? And B, what can I do to reverse that for myself? Because I am not actually, if I go away from my five-year-old self and get into 15-year-old Brian and 25-year-old Brian, as I talk in the third person here, my family, I've got two brothers, parents that are very confident and speak their mind and argue. And when we get together, we're not always curious with each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so my wiring is very easily not curious. Like I can easily go into, this is the answer. This is the solution. I'm very, it, it's, it goes quickly. And through my education and my learning and experiences like doing the podcast, I have leaned more into curiosity. I think it's a trait that we can unlock, that we can relearn. And I don't even think it's learning because you know how to do it because you did it when you were five and yeah. we, we need to find ways to continue to unlock that. And I mentioned the word emotional earlier for me, my emotions often cloud my curiosity and I get excited or excitable. And then I'm, I, I lack the ability to say, all right, what's your perspective staff? Or I'm like, that's the answer. And I get jacked up and fired up because I found a solution and I don't stay curious. And that's often what gets in the way for me in my life and parenting partnerships, uh, relationships and, and even this podcast. So uh, yeah. have you, have you become more curious, less curious as you do more work? Yeah. I, I mean, I, okay. So this really, one of my all time, most favorite people in the world, um, his name is Bob Lord and he's a psychologist who wrote this paper on quantum theory applied to like leader development. <laughs> so I'm like, mind blown, right? What the heck, right? And one of the things that says the idea of the theory he's proposing is that when you're really young, you have all the paths open to you. You could be an astronaut, you could, you could be a professional athlete, you could be a CEO, you could be a president. The paths are endless. As you get older, you're running out of space. And so you it's not possible you've kept up the capacity to train what it the 10,000 hours or whatever it takes to become a professional athlete or you know taken the area of study to help you become an astronaut like those you start to run out of runway and so you your scope of like i want to know all the things has to narrow in on knowing things that are going to serve you to some extent i will say that after in my this is opinion after some point when you've kind of mastered what you're doing and i think this is where you're living right now you then your curiosity can open up again because it's like well you already are successful so now you can just like you know what i want to interview this random business professor i want to know about what she does and you can be curious in that way again for people so some maybe some of us are more curious about people than others but i would say and the data would agree with me the number one reason we lack empathy and curiosity for people is because we won't like shut the hell up like stop talking and start listening and that's what we see for leaders as they get promoted through organizations early on you ask a lot of questions you want to know what how do i get ahead how do i be successful how do i do this task what should i do here and now you're the one that has all the knowledge and so you spend all the time talking and i think that as 
signals to you that you're the you know you're the one who should be talking but also trains you not to be curious because there's nothing to be learned from other people you're the one with the answers people come to you for the answers and the opposite is true right we can always be learning and growing and we should always maintain that curiosity and really the best leaders are those who maintain humility at least intellectual humility to think they still have things to learn from others and so they ask the questions they listen and i'll give a little uh, tidbit because it's really easy to listen and ask questions and i like i teach this to my mbas and stuff right like before you tell everyone the answer ask the questions of them because once you say the answer like no one's gonna if you're the boss it's like rare that people are bold enough to say actually i think it's this ask the questions and as soon as the person's talking you're picking apart their answer you're thinking about what you're going to say next you're you know doing all the mental tricks to come up with how you're going to show them you're right and they're wrong but instead of that let go of that and work really hard on perspective taking and so when they're done talking you're going to say and you maybe you can do this to me Brian you can say so it sounds like what you just said is this and so now I'm going to pair it back to you you can correct me no actually no that wasn't what I was saying sorry Steph or you can say yeah that's what I was saying and that person will feel very heard but it also means it's really hard for you to think about what you're going to say or pick apart their answer when you're actually trying to understand what they're saying sufficiently enough to parrot it back to them. It's a huge, I think, tool. I would encourage anyone and everyone who's listening to try it just once or twice. Your partner at home, if it's not in the office, will be blown away. They will love you more. Your children will be like, oh, you get me. I can't believe this. This is the first time you've ever listened to anything I've said. And at work, I think it'll help you understand your team better and just be more effective. And if I were to summarize what I yes! heard from you, <laughs> it's that people like to be seen. And so if you let them know that you're really listening to them and you really hear them and you understand their perspective and you play that back for them to hear, to say, hey, did I did I hear you right? Did I see you right? Um, that that goes a long way in, in building trust or relationship uh, with someone that you may be leading or, or collaborating with. I feel so seen right now. Thank you. And it means it'll make you more curious because you're actually listening and you're gonna be like, why do you, what makes you think that way? Or like, where did that come from? Or, you know, it's just, it's amazing when you switch mindsets. I know you talk a lot about mindsets, but when you switch into that mindset of like really trying to understand what all the other great things that can change. Now that we did that, there was something that you said before that I really was curious about. Oh, yay. <laughs> there was an element in there of, for me, Brian, I think you nailed it. This podcast, I interview whoever the hell I want to interview. And, you know, one day it's, if I look at my next three podcast guests, there's a CEO of a company, there's a lacrosse coach, and then there's a professor, right? Like, and those are my next three guests. And someone might say, well, who's your niche audience? Who's your audience? Who are you talking to? You wrote a book, Steph, you know this. Who's the audience? Who's this book for? We live in this world where niching down is like the way to go. And I have rejected it uh, up yeah. until now. And you said something that I think is probably true as to why I've rejected it. Beyond that, I don't, 
I'm not that interested in, in niching, even though I did sports psychology, which was a niche, but underneath sports psychology, they'd say, well, are you focused on golf, basketball, baseball, soccer, whatever, softball. And I'd be like, no, no, I want to work with everybody in sports. And they'd be like, all right, good luck, buddy. But I think the truth is, if I'm really being honest and you hit on this is going back to that word of privilege, I was in a position where I could uh, interview whoever the heck I want on the podcast, not worry about how this is going to come back to me from a financial standpoint. Yeah. Um, and I could do this and I have gotten business and clients from this, but I could do this because I wanted to, and I could interview the people that I wanted to learn from. And so I'm, I'm really curious to get your perspective on this. For me, I think my privilege has allowed me to be more open and curious about who I have on the podcast. Let's just use that as an example. And so what I'm wondering about, and and if you have any data or research, because I know you love research, does privilege tend to open us up to being more inclusive? Does privilege tend to uh, block us from being more inclusive? Does privilege tend to give us an opportunity to be more curious or does it actually hinder us and create us thinking in a more convicted way rather than a more curious way. And I'm putting them in binaries, yeah. but I, I'm not sure. I, I'm i wondering as me as a, a sample uh, of one, like I think my privilege has actually given me a gift to be curious because I didn't have to execute and I could just play. Um, yeah. But perhaps someone who is working at a factory doesn't have the same opportunity to have the gift of curiosity that I think I may have. Yeah, it's interesting. I would guess it's probably a zero correlation between privilege and curiosity. But I think individuals who recognize their privilege, and a lot of people, unlike you, are like, do not say I'm privileged. You don't know what I've dealt with. And I use this example in Inclusify that, listen, we all have privilege. And this is something I stole from Dolly Chug in her book, um, How to Be a Good-ish. Good-ish. Yeah, we had had Dolly on the podcast. Yeah, so she talks about this too. This is where I got the analogy that we all have headwinds and tailwinds. We all have privilege and things that maybe slowed us down. And recognizing those in yourself, acknowledging them, I think allows you to be more curious about other people's experiences. When it doesn't work is when people feel really attacked for their, you know, what do you know about, like, I have had people say this to me. I told you I identify as Mexican, but I had people say, what do you know about diversity or as a white woman? And that, I think those kind of attacks and like, I, I roll with it. It's okay. But when uh, I think when a lot of people experience this, what it actually does is causes them to feel like a fight or flight. So then in that case, we know curiosity is at its least when we feel attacked or threatened. And so when, you know, I don't think it helps to encourage people to be curious, to attack, berate or belittle them about their privilege, but instead invite them to think about, you know, their own experiences. And if they can think about their own, maybe they can work to understand others. There's something really brilliant in there that I'm going to just pull on labels. 
when we label others as X, Y, and Z yeah. before we listen to how they identify, we run into all kinds of issues. Yeah. And so let's like, give you use pronouns as an example. If someone wants to use pronouns so that you better understand who they are, like they're giving you information on how they identify for them to say to me, well, you identify as X, Y, and Z without giving me the autonomy to choose how I identify myself. That's where we get into this defensive battle. Yeah, I love that, it. I think you solved all the world's problems right there. I think so. I think I figured out life, but, yeah. but it is like giving people the freedom to identify how they see themselves um, and listen to how they see themselves. And someone might, their number one identity might be that they're American. And for someone else, it might be that they're a father and someone else, it might be that they're a lesbian. Like, where do you start? And then let's go a little deeper. All right. How else do you identify? And let's listen and try to give them space to identify how they identify. And if we do that, then we're probably creating a more unique and belonging environment. So we just wrote, you know, the prologue, I think it's there you go. Prologue. <laughs> book two is done. Book two. Um, all right. We could talk all day. Um, I had a million other questions. We didn't get to all of them. Um, I wanted you to help me with parenting because you're a little further ahead. I wanted you to help me with <laughs> sabbatical. I wanted to talk about artificial intelligence. I really wanted to get into DEI in a post George Floyd environment. So maybe that's the one that I want to get your thoughts on before we close. Uh, you wrote your book before the George Floyd murder. And like, I know the world that I'm in, people started calling our company for DEI because we had something we called bias and belonging that we had a workshop that we'd been doing on bias and belonging and no one called before George Floyd. And Post George Floyd, everyone's like, oh, do you have anything? And they would say DI. We'd say, well, we don't call it DI. We call it bias and belonging because we think everyone has bias and we think you want to create an environment of belonging. And that's just good business. Um, and so we've been in that space. Can you talk about your experience having done this work for a while now and writing the book pre-George Floyd and you know, our businesses, and this is just my experience, you might have some data on this. They were calling right after George Floyd and they're calling for maybe a year. And I'll tell you, as we record this, basically in September of 2023, we ain't getting phone calls for DEI work. Um, yeah. And so like, what have you seen? And then where are we going? And I think a lot of companies are now like, okay, that was a nice to have, but as we're laying off people, we're probably not going to invest in DEI right now. Or, you know, this, this ship has sailed and, you know, it was emotional and a big thing. And, you know, we've got our other things to figure out, like, give me your lens into that world. And um, I'm curious to yeah. get your perspective. My experience is just like yours, right? So there was a a lot of awareness, a lot of talk, a lot of pledges, a lot of DEI officers hired following the murder of George Floyd. I think there's some of that that cannot ever be put back in the box. I think it's like the Me Too movement. Like there's, we can't unsee this. All of the, you know, optimism that people had like, oh, this is a fair, safe, equitable world. It, that's never going to, I don't think it's going to return. Maybe if it becomes a Ferris equitable world, we'll think that, but it's pretty hard to pretend at this point that it is safe in America to be a black man or woman. Like it's not, we know that. And I think that caused organizations to step up and now they're kind of stepping back there. You know, there's been a lot of turnover among chief diversity officers, 
um, layoffs, diversity budgets cut in many companies. And my uh, prediction for the future, I don't know if I'm right or not, is that all of the, the investment will come back because I don't believe it's possible to be competitive as an organization without diversity and inclusion. If you just look at the demographics of the future workforce and what I'm going to stereotype millennials and Gen Z's as wanting out of an organization, one that aligns with their values. You're, I don't believe companies are going to be successful at attracting and retaining top talent and you know filling their human resource needs without some attention to diversity. And maybe that can be more authentic than let's have some social events and give some people, you know, hire some folks and put them on our website, but actually doing it because it is the, it is needed for the company to survive and thrive. I think that's a good place for us to close. Uh, Steph, if people want to learn more about what you're up to with the Center for Leadership, uh, obviously the book, where's the best place to guide them to so that they can learn more about your work? Yeah, my webpage, drstephjohnson.com or inclusify.com, uh, the Center for Leadership at University of Colorado Boulder. It's colorado.edu is the um, webpage. Maybe we can put some links, but all those, that's not a really good answer, right? That's like a whole myriad of places. No, we have a wizard in Joey who <laughs> takes our, if you ever listen to these conversations and you read our show notes, like we have, we don't have the best podcast in the world. I'm probably confident on that. I'm sure there are people that have better podcasts, but our show notes are really good because of my guy, Joey, uh, Joey creates like awesome show notes and he will link, uh, all of your stuff in there. I, if it was me, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm just not as I know. That's why I kept saying we'd put it in the show notes. Thanks, Joey. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks to Joey. Um, Steph's also on, I think we call it X now. Um, I still call it Twitter. Uh, you know, it, it, you're not that active there, but uh, she is at Dr. Steph Johnson. And then are you on LinkedIn as well? Yeah, if people want to follow you there, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram at Dr. Steph Johnson, D-R-S-T-E-F-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Perfect. I am on X. I can't say that. I'm sorry, Elon. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, uh, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. We actually referenced some pretty cool conversations we had in the past. Dolly Chug, you mentioned. Uh, Scott O'Neill, we mentioned. Uh, there are plenty of SEALs we mentioned. So um, this was a blast. I'm grateful to Brant Tillis for connecting us. So shout out to Brant, who is an avid listener. And I know he'll listen to this. So uh, he's who put us in touch. So thanks to Brant. And uh, looking forward to continuing to follow your journey at University of Colorado. You have an interesting football team. I'll tell you that. Like, I think That's everybody's right, watching. <laughs> everybody's watching coach and seeing what this year brings. So it's going to be a, a fun, fun year at at your university. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate your cur your empathetic curiosity. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Maybe the real bottom line truth is I know it makes my outcomes better when I have people who have really different views than my own. I worked for a while with uh, this amazing human, Aaron Roof, who was a um, you know, had a military background and his views on leadership were so different than mine. I'm like, oh, let's be inclusive and shared leadership. And 
and he was, you know, had a military background. And so he had more of a traditional hierarchical view of leadership and the programming and opportunities we put together at, this is at the Center for Leadership at University of Colorado were all the better because we had, you know, I couldn't just take it to the extreme of like, we don't need leaders. We all just share the responsibility. You do need leaders. And so our training that we offered and our opportunities for students were better because we had these like very opposing views on the way things should be done.